Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Good morning, everybody out there in uh, Dairyland. Uh, welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. Um, I thought today we'd talk about a topic I get asked uh, quite a bit on farm. Uh, it's about inoculants. So I know uh, in the past I've uh, rode around with uh, Dr. Andy Skidmore from Lulliman Andy Animal Nutrition. Uh, he's the technical services ruminant uh, for them, and he is based in uh, Indiana. And uh, why don't you say hi, Andy, and maybe talk a little bit about yourself, about uh where you've been and what you're up to. Hey, I'm Andy Skidmore. I live in Indiana in the United States. I've been working for Lalleman for almost six years now in a technical support role and primarily support the markets in the US and Canada. And providing you guys with the technical information to help you be more successful. My background, uh, I am a veterinarian. And I did practice in a private practice for a while and uh, then went back to school, did a PhD, been on the faculty at Michigan State University, um, worked for Merck Animal Health in both global and uh, US roles prior to coming to Lalamond and worked a lot of other different positions in the dairy industry. So what did you do your uh, PhD in then? It was in dairy management at Cornell University. Okay, you were just looking at all aspects of the, like how the whole farm works, well, like how it's all integrated or? Yeah, I mean, there's not very many places to do dairy management as a major uh, for a graduate degree. But primarily, yes, I was looking at everything on the dairy and looking at how everything is integrated together and how management or the decisions that are made by uh, the dairyman can affect can affect his profitability yeah so and then that's how kind of led you into the lullaman world with uh forage quality and and things like that yep that's correct now do you do uh, any support, like, are you mostly based on the inoculant side or do you do some stuff with some yeast? I do well? stuff with the yeast as well. So I support okay. both the inoculants and the yeast and those DFM products. So I want to dive right into it. I know this is the time of year we get asked a lot about uh, with inoculants because I know either people are buying it with seed or I know there's lots of early order stuff out there. And, and it's one of the more common questions I get. Do I do I inoculate or do I not inoculate? I know um, it can be quite a cost depending on how many tons of silage you're putting up, but it can also be quite a cost uh, if you're not putting all the, if you're not protecting all those tons of silage that you put up. So can you maybe, we'll just start at the very top and and we could talk about, you know, what is inoculant and maybe some of the science behind it? Sure, uh, inoculant is putting bacteria on to the silage in order to control the fermentation. So we ferment uh, silage to control that fermentation and that's how we preserve the nutrients for the cows to be fed later on in the year. So then like the goal is to produce uh, higher lactic and acetic acids, correct? 
Well, that's correct. That's part of the fermentation process that, that it goes through or pickling process as some people like to describe it in that the, the bacteria that we put on there controls that fermentation to its optimum to get the greatest efficiency in the fermentation and preservation of the nutrients for the cows that we're feeding. And so uh, lactic acid is a very strong acid that uh, bacteria produce. And so it gets that real fast fermentation at the beginning to get the pH down to where it's a preservative level. And acetic acid then, uh, depending on the bacteria that's in there, uh, how much acetic acid, how efficiently it's produced. But the acetic acid then controls it on the back, what we call the back end, which is when you're feeding it out, the acetic acid will control the yeast, which initiate the spoilage process. And so it's a kind of a front end and a back end type of fermentation control. Yeah. And so with the inoculant, like on the front end, uh, we'll start there with like the, the lactic acid producing bacteria. Like, is there naturally occurring uh, lactic acid producing bacteria? Like, are we trying to help it or are we trying to overpopulate? And does it have any effect on, you know, anything, any other, you know, yeasts or, or molds and things like that, that you'd be bringing in out of the field? Well, lactic acid is produced by many different kinds of bacteria. And the, when the crop comes in out of the field, it has lots and lots of different kinds of bacteria on there, including lactic acid producing bacteria. So there's two things to understand here is that, uh, some bacteria will produce just lactic acid and being a very strong acid that's what we want other bacteria will produce different kinds of organic acids and not do so efficiently and so that they'll produce you know whatever the other organic acid is and may do that at a high cost to the energy and the nutrients that are in your feed and so what Lalleman has done is they've selected strains of yeast. We think strains are very important. We evaluate different strains of bacteria to find the ones most efficient at doing what we want to do. Uh, and in this case is producing lactic acid very efficiently, very quickly, and not producing anything else. And uh, to, to preserve as many nutrients as possible for feeding to the cows. So when we're looking at the fermentation process, like what kind of nutrients are going to be used by either the the naturally occurring bacteria that are producing lactic acid or by the inoculant? Well, uh, both of them utilize sugars. And so the different sugars that are available in there, you know, the starch can easily be broken down into sugar. So they're mostly feeding off the sugars. But what some of the bacteria will also do is they'll feed on the proteins. Okay. And the ones that we put into our uh, inoculants do not feed on protein. They strictly use sugar as their soup, uh, food source and creating the lactic acid in order to preserve the nutrients. Yeah, and then this all happens like after the silage has been put in and packed and right. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's happening in that process. And it's an anaerobic process, meaning oxygen is your enemy and that's why packing is so important in there and 
So when we talk about preserving nutrients for the cows, you uh, take the air out or take the water out. And in okay. the case of fermentation and silage, we take all the air out to make it an, an efficient anaerobic process in order to pickle the nutrients and preserve them for the cows. Yeah, so I guess what you're looking for, I'm going to gather this and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like you were looking for a fast drop in pH as early as possible with the silage, correct? That's correct. So you want then, that pH yeah. to drop as fast as possible. That way you preserve as many nutrients as possible. If fermentation takes 30 days, then yeah. it's going to take, you know, a whole lot more nutrients. The other issue that you come into is that many of the pathogenic or bad bacteria will survive a slow drop in pH. Mm -hmm. If you drop it real fast, then you eliminate a lot of those E. coli, salmonellas, listerias. If you can drop it real fast within the first three to five days. So like I, I know on farm, we talk about the fermentation process and we look at, you know, different crops, haylage or corn silage and how long it takes. And I'm just wondering if maybe we talk about it wrong. Like the fermentation sounds like it happens relatively fast if you're using an inoculant or, um, you know, just practicing uh, best practices on silage. Like it, it's going to get that initial drop real fast. So then does it just like kind of sit there and steep? Like if you left a tea bag in a teapot for an hour versus three or four hours before you started uh, drinking it, I guess. Yeah, it does do that. Um, so the fermentation creates a lot of heat. And so that heating process, so if we get the pH to drop within the first three to five days, which is ideal, then it's generated some heat and that heat will stick around because there's a huge biomass there. Yeah. And it takes forever for that heat to dissipate out of that. But by dropping it fast, we also minimize the amount of heat that's generated in that, in the silage. So Haylage is quite a bit different than corn silage. So when I say we drop that pH in three to five days, that's correct. There's still some heating going on. There's, you know, a few other changes going on after that. In corn silage, though, we get the same temperature profile, or ideally we get the same temperature profile. But the unique thing about corn silage is in the starch fraction in those grain kernels that over time we get enzymatic breakdown of the protein structure that uh, keeps the starch unavailable to the bacteria. So for instance, if we keep corn silage in for 90 days in a pile before we start feeding it, the starch is much more available for the cow because of the enzymatic breakdown of the uh, protein structure that that starch is bound into. Um, does on the corn silage thing, does the fiber become more available or more digestible or is that set like during the growing season? Uh, that would depend on the enzymes that are included. Okay. All of Lalaman's inoculants, or most all of them, I guess it's not all of them, do have enzymes in there. And so the more time you have, the more time those enzymes have to work and to break down the fiber part of it. And so you can increase your fiber digestibility because of the enzymes that are included in it. 
If the enzymes are not there, then it's not going to change the longer it sits in the pile. Yeah. Um, back to Halage, you said something too. Like, I was always under the impression that Halage was a lot tougher crop to get fermented just because the lack of uh, feedstock for like the, the acid producing bacteria to get it fermented. Can you maybe just walk us through that a little bit on how the diff the crops are different? Okay, so in a hay crop silage, the there's not near as much starch or sugar there for the bacteria to grow on. So it makes it much more difficult to get that pH drop to where it needs to be. The other part of that is that uh, the halage has a lot more protein in it. And protein helps buffer the acid. And so it gets much more difficult because of those uh, ammonia fractions that are part of the protein there, they buffer against the acid. So it's harder to drop it. So the other thing is that we harvest haylage or hay crop uh, much closer to the ground. So we pick up a lot more soil when we harvest the haylage hay crop. And that soil then acts as a buffer against the pH. So hay crop, you've got three things against you that you don't have with corn silage. One, um, you've got a crop that doesn't have near as much food for the bacteria doesn't have near the sugars in it. Two, you've got a crop that uh, has much higher in protein, which buffers the acid. And then you've also got a lot of soil contamination or can have uh, a lot more ash or soil in, in the crop that will buffer the acid as well. So those are the things you've got working against you in a hay crop and make it much tougher to ensile than what a corn silage will. And I guess I would kind of go for the, the small grains as well. Yes. Yep. Yeah, like if you're looking at your oatlage or but barley yeah, or... Typically with oatlage or baleage or barleage, um, you, depending on when you harvest it. Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose yeah, like if you're doing you, a whole crop, like a corn silage right. or barley or something like that, you're going to have way less contamination from soil. Your minerals right. are probably going to be lower as well, and protein will be lower. But if you're but if you're harvesting that uh, real late, which is not something I would recommend, you're going to have a lot of starch and sugar yeah. in there because of the head. The grain is already formed in there. Typically, with your your hay crops, you don't have a seed or a grain there that's going to provide food for the bacteria. Yeah, I suppose it. I guess you'd look at more like a barley silage or a, or a wheat silage, more like that, I guess, in the Western areas where, or maybe, right. I don't know about the Southeast or Southwest US, like they're not, are they direct cutting um, small grain silages like that or is kind of uh, corn the number one down there? Southeast the United States? Or south, yeah, Southeast or Southwest. Like I know they're doing some more uh, wheat and things like that, but I think they're cutting that a little bit earlier. Uh, they are cutting it a little bit earlier, but a lot of that is because they're double cropping. Yeah, okay. So they'll they'll put in a triticale, which is more common uh, yeah. than either wheat or rye or barley or anything else. So it's a triticale that they put in, they harvest, and they'll get it to that boot stage or to the, uh, you know, where that head just starting to peak out. Mm -hmm. Ideally, that's where they would chop it. 
and then they come yeah. back in and plant corn right on top of it. Yeah, okay. Get it off. Yeah, so it's that's funny doing it. Yeah, it's interesting because I know like it's so regionally specific here in North America where you know you go to Europe and a lot of places like you're in that you're in Holland for instance they're growing corn and grass silage and and doing that but here in Canada I know like Western Canada we just don't have the heat to grow corn so they're yeah. doing like whole crop. Uh, with barley and barley, and, wheat right. and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, do the different crops need different, not like different bacteria profiles? Um, I wouldn't say that they need different bacteria profiles between, you know, let's say a, a barley silage versus a corn silage or alfalfa silage. But what's more important is the rate that you're putting it on and, you know, the, the bacteria that you're using and, you know, when you're harvesting. So, you know, the maturity of the crop and some of those other things are much more important. And then like on the, cause I know we talked about like different strains of bacteria, like, are you going to look at a different bacteria, like, like add in a second? bacteria for something like corn versus haylage like i've just been under the impression that like with corn silage you're a lot more worried about the feed out you're worried about the front end fermentation but you're also worried about the feed out and making sure it stays stable just because it does have that starch con like that starch content to it so you can get some uh wild yeast growth and things like that like do you have that risk with haylage or hay silage uh, you do you, you do have that risk with haylage as well it doesn't have near the sugar content, but the thing you have to remember is those yeast will eat lactic acid for lunch. Okay. And so you get that initial fermentation. And then if you've got a lot of wild yeast in there, it's going to eat the acid and then you lose all the preservation effects of it. And then your mold comes in and that's where you see things really start to spoil quickly. Is that when you start to see like the little pockets of white like in a face yeah like if you're looking around yeah yeah if, if they weren't there before from the initial yeah. fermentation yeah, yeah that would be correct can you maybe talk about uh yeast a little bit because i know it's not something that's very common but i i, I feel like over the last couple summers we've really been battling it here um in ontario is is yeast issues and you know especially around like butterfat depression i think we're seeing a lot of that because we are going to go we are pulling tmr samples and testing for yeast and you know seeing 20 and 30 million cfus and that's getting high yeah <laughs> yeah it's getting high yeah so the, what i've observed over the last you know five ten years here is that the more we practice uh no till or minimal till in our fields, leaving much more crop residue there. The yeast count, the wild yeast counts are getting higher and higher. So as that crop residue sits there, yeah, it becomes a good environment to grow yeast in there and other things. And so we're seeing much higher contamination levels now because of our agronomic practices. And those wild yeast then get into our silage and when the temperatures get above uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what, 15 degrees yeah, centigrade, like eight, or, eight, like or that, 10, yeah. eight or 10 degrees uh, 
centigrade, the yeast will start to wake up. And so yeast need uh, moisture, food, and air. And so the yeah. moisture's there, the air is exposed when you open the silo and when you're taking feed off every day, depending on how well you're managing that base. And, you know, the food is there because they'll eat lactic acid. And yeah. so they'll, they'll start eating the lactic acid and that generates a lot of heat. And then when that heat is there and there's more food there than the molds come in, and that's when you see a lot of spoilage. Yeah, I know it's just something that I've been a lot more, I guess like you, like I've observed it a lot more in the last five to seven, eight years. It's just, it seems like as we are getting pushing higher yields and pushing uh, agronomics harder on farms, I feel that we're seeing some more uh, disease pressure. And I'm not sure if I call it disease pressure, but more challenges uh, management challenges right so yes that that would be correct yeah um with the acids like if you're inoculating versus not a lot inoculating like does it change the feed value like how can a person evaluate it like say i'm the i'm looking at their uh, producer's feed samples like is there anything that's going to jump out at me like that'll say hey they inoculated or didn't inoculate or they had a good fermentation or did they maybe didn't have a good fermentation? Well, it's very difficult to tell whether they inoculated or did not inoculate because you never have a control to compare against. Yeah. But we can look at feed quality in there and look at uh, different signals, I guess you'd call them, that would indicate how well the fermentation went. So we can look for... Uh, off products like butyric acid or, um, you know, some of the other bioamines, I guess we call them, um, the the stinky amino acids that are produced Mm -hmm. from a fermentation that wasn't very good. Uh, It had a lot of bacteria that came in from the field that dominated the fermentation. And it may have been just because it was really wet as well you get a poor fermentation. So dry matter is one. Looking at the profile of the fermentation acids will kind of indicate how the fermentation went, as well as looking at the proteins in there, which, um, you know, corn silage doesn't have a lot of protein in it, but their hay crops do. And looking at how much ammonia is in there, Ammonia would be an indicator of how much of the protein is broken down. And if you get the, um, uh, used to be called ADIN, it's now called ADICP. It's an indigestible protein that's in there. And that's more as a result of the heating process, binding up the protein to make it unavailable to the cow. I've heard that before. Like like I guess the practical like if you were to observe it on farm would be like that kind of like chocolatey smelling or kind of like burnt color. Yeah. Burnt, you can get uh, that. Crop. It's a tobacco smell. You can get yeah. that kind of overheats and binds a lot of the protein in there. You know, the cadaverines and the putrescines, those are generated from the breakdown of different amino acids into yeah. the cadaverine or putrescine. And they smell just like they sound. 
I know we talked about this on some previous co- podcasts, but like we really need to get like smell as a feature on uh, phones and stuff like that, just so people. Yeah, have there idea. you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, with the acids, like like we're talking about acids and how they're important to the crop for the fermentation process, but can you maybe talk about how they're important to like the ruminant animal? Because I know that it's not something that we always look at, but I know like lactic and acetic acid are used as an energy sure. source for a cow. So, Yeah, uh, lactic acid and acetic acid are both used. Propionic acid is also used for the cow as an energy source. We usually do not account for that in our balancing programs and that type of thing, but they are available to the cow. Uh, certainly don't want to get too much acid in there to create an acidosis or some clinical acidosis effect. And with normal silage, we don't ever approach that. But that's just a pH change. But normally in the rumen through the fermentation process of the crop or the feed, um, it produces volatile fatty acid, which lactic acid, acetic acid, butyric acid, and, um, and propionic acid are all the um, volatile fatty acids, we call mm-hmm. them, that are generated through the fermentation process and absorbed out of the rumen in the gut and provide energy sources for the cow. Yeah, so it's just as important on the fermentation side to make sure that it's right, just to help utilize, I guess, get better bang for your buck. Sure. So like, your forages. It's efficiency, efficiency of you using those nutrients. So if yeah. you can efficiently produce lactic acid in your silage and, and acetic acid, then you're not losing a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the cow will still utilize that for energy, but if it's an inefficient process, for example, if you're uh, fermenting the sugar and it produces one lactic acid and two CO2 carbons and, you know, water, then, you know, that's not a very efficient process. Yeah. So if we can take the sugar and make two lactic acids or a lactic acid and an acetic acid out of it, then we haven't lost any energy. Yeah. Is there a ratio, like if you're looking at a sample that you're looking at uh, like a lactic to acetic that you want to see, like, is there like a two to one rule or two and a half to one? Yeah. I mean, in general, it's about two to one rule. Like you said that, uh, yeah, we want to see some lactic acid and some acetic acid in there. The acetic acid primarily to control the yeast when we feed it out. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's general. It, it's not a real hard and fast rule. No, that... I'm just thinking like, if you want to look at a fermentation profile and I know I've seen it in the past is where I'll have more acetic than lactic. And I'm like, Hey, something's, something's, something's not a right little there. weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it just doesn't seem like it was a, either a good fermentation or, or there's something would, maybe on the management correct. side that, yeah. Yeah. It's so. either too wet or took too long to ferment or, Something happened there that fermentation was out of control. Yep. I want to uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, like I know we've talked a lot about the science behind inoculant, and I want to jump on to the economic side because there is a cost. Like I'm, sure. I don't want to talk prices or anything like that because um, I don't know what the different vendors and whatever are selling their product for, but there's a t- cost per ton. And if a producer is trying to 
make a decision on on their on their feed spend because I th I think this is really a a, a feed spend uh, part of your feed yes. bill. Like how yep. how would a a producer go about evaluating that to make sure that you know the price is good and they get good uh, value out of that product? Uh, that's difficult thing for the producer to actually uh, evaluate on the farm. And the reason for that is that many of these changes are happening and are difficult to measure on the farm mm -hmm. and to measure those actual, you know, what's the dry matter loss in this fermentation versus another one. The other challenge you have is that it's so variable from one year to the next or one cutting to the next, depending on what the weather, the maturity of the crop and moisture and chop length, you know, and all those things have a bearing on the fermentation process, you know, as well as packing and base management and all those things. So it becomes, there's so many variables in there that it becomes very difficult for a farmer to compare, you know, one year to the next or, uh, you know, this crop versus another crop or this inoculant versus another inoculant. And so what that means is you got to go back to the reputation of the supplier. Is it somebody you trust? And then what research is behind their inoculants? And you got to trust the research that's been done in universities, which is most often done in five gallon tubs. Okay. <laughs> as many silos, because that's the only way they can replicate, re repeat yeah. the, the treatments and get comparable results from, you know, one treatment versus another treatment. Yeah. So, and that's when we kind of, like, I've always thought about, like, you look at dry matter loss, like what's the, what's the dry matter loss? Because I think that's the most direct cost of the farm yes. because it, like, there's a cost to running like just for instance i'm going to use this as an example but like if a producer is using a custom operator to do everything to cut pack cover whatever you know you're looking at i don't know what the u.s prices are but probably in in canada anywhere from 800 to 1200 dollars uh an hour and that's depending on the crop like hay is going to be a little more expensive than corn silage but uh if you look at that um so you've got your harvest costs you got your growing costs you got you know land costs things like that like i th i think you just have to look at how many acres are we going to put up as silage and how much feed are we going to get back out like if you look at dry matter loss if you got to put up an extra 10 acres or 12 acres you know that custom operator is going to be another twelve hundred thousand dollars for that hour to do that crop you know what's what's the direct cost of that and then you have to look at feed quality i think uh, absolutely. So feed quality you can evaluate, but again, you know, is that the inoculant or is that the management to put it in mm -hmm. and the crop that was grown when it was harvested and all those other factors that are in there. There are a couple of indirect indicators you can look at, such as the spoilage within the pile or bunker. You can look at the sides of the bunker and how much they shrank over time. Mm -hmm. If you've got an indicator there, you know, I've seen guys will put a scale up on the wall of the uh, bunker silo and measure how much it falls down and drops over time. That's dry matter loss because all of that is just going to CO2 and water. So you can look at that over time. 
And with the uh, new drone technology, what I've seen is uh, uh, amazing to me, but they can, they can take a drone, measure the volume of your silo, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a pile, a bunker, whatever. They can measure what that volume is. If you know the density, you know the tonnage. And then they can do that over time. And you can actually see how the volume reduces over time, you know, 5, 8, 10, 15%, whatever it is. That's all dry matter loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's the, I think that's the easiest one to kind of get a tangible, something like you can go out and look at the pile and evaluate it and you can kind of see like, I often hear the comments from producers all either we'll just feed that stuff on the top to our heifers or i can't believe it like we don't have to throw anything away right and and, uh i think those and and just looking visually looking at the pile like i know um, producers going say above the walls of the bunkers for instance and you can really see that pile change you could almost do like a a picture take a picture when you put it in and then take another picture six months later and then lay them over each other and just see you know where that where that loss is and that that's dry matter loss or shrink whatever you want to call it on the farm so that's basically what the drone technology does is that same yeah so you gotta have a reference point there you can look at whether it's the wall the bunker tree behind it or whatever yeah you you have to have a scale you have to have scale yeah otherwise you'll never see it yeah so one of the other things you might as a uh indirect indicator would be the amount of effluent that comes off of the silage pile. So Lallman puts enzymes into their um, silage inoculants. And those enzymes help break down some of those lignin bonds and some of the fiber uh, bound up there to make the crop much more absorbent. So you don't, the analogy I use is a paper towel versus a two by four to mop up spilled milk. You know, if you got an enzymatic reaction in there that allows the fiber to break up a little bit and absorb more moisture or more nutrients mm-hmm. that don't run out into the field or wherever it runs to yeah so, well that's all nutrient loss too isn't it that's correct yeah i know it stinks like to high heaven i know it, it stinks to high heaven but <laughs> you and can always that always stinks that's all the dry matter those are the goodies those are the best goodies that want the cow to have yeah i know like sometimes uh i know people have got in my car and say it smells like cow well you're lucky it smells like cow because i was just in a nasty pit of silage and it smelled like that for the last two days so yeah just walking through the affluence so um and then i guess like we've talked about science and the economics like what are some you know best practices that we can kind of look at to help uh make that inoculant investment work? Well, uh, best practices would be harvesting at the right maturity and moisture levels. Yeah. That that would be number one. Number two would be to pack it. Pack, mm-hmm. pack, pack. Pack the living daylights out of it. Get all the air out of it. Because the inoculant's not going to work if you got air in there. And so those would be two big things is proper packing and proper harvest conditions when you put the crop in so to get the fermentation to work. And those, those would be the two biggest ones. Then you get cover the pile. You've got 
feed out, feed out at an appropriate rate and use a good inoculant. Yeah, I know that's uh it's a huge investment producers put in. Like I know like we evaluate feed costs all the time and you know, we specifically look at um, you know, what they're purchasing off the farm, but I think we have to kind of look at the forage as a purchased off the farm commodity as well, because the way land prices are here and the way, you know, like even just the increase in fertilizer, chemicals, custom rates, fuel, like costs are going up, going up, going up. So how can you maximize your feed spend on, uh, on forages? Um, I know it's not necessarily feasible to do some of these things where you're measuring shrink. So you can do a, a side-by-side comparison um, with inoculant versus no inoculant. Cause I don't know of too many farms here in Ontario that are running all their forages across the scale, for instance, and then measuring on feed out to see right. what the, what the difference would be. I think that's maybe some, a little bit more common in the U S with some big dairies or big feedlots. But um, I think it's just one of those things like how it's like an insurance policy. I guess we have to look at it like, like, yeah. is the insurance policy cheap enough to justify the cost of it to protect our, our feed investment that we have sitting there in the bunker right. silo. So that would be correct. I would agree with that. Was there anything else that you, uh, that comes to mind when you're thinking about, you know, either the science behind inoculants, economics, or, or some of the best practices to making forage? Well, uh, you know, like I said before, go with a quality inoculant and look at what your needs are. Um, you know, when I say that, you know, are your challenges at the front end or the back end? You know, every farm is different. If you don't have a challenge on the back end, meaning the feed out, then you may not need to go to the more expensive inoculants. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, you Buchneri is a bacteria that uh, is for the back end, is for feed out. It produces acetic acid very efficiently to control the yeast populations. And, but it's also one that's very expensive to grow. It's much more expensive to grow, so that's why the cost of a Buchneri type of product uh, is going to be more expensive than one that does not have Buchneri in it. And so just the cost of goods is much higher with that particular bacteria. And so as you look at that, you look at the challenges that you face and, you know, the back end is under management control. And so if that's not a challenge then you can go with a very good front end for a minute and, you know, not so much on the back end and, you know, use a bacteria that's going to drop that pH very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we try and select, you know, bacteria that are what I call Ferraris. And that uh, they'll drop that, they grow very quickly. You know, doubling time is, uh, makes a huge difference on how fast okay. that pH is going to drop. And, and that's so, the, pro- like the proliferation rate. I always have trouble with that word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's how fast it grows. So if you got one bacteria, how fast does it become two? How fast does it become four? How fast eight to 16? You know, that, yeah. that's what we call a doubling rate. And that's how fast the bacteria grow. And so, you know, a bacteria that, that doubles in 30 minutes versus 60 minutes makes a huge difference. Yeah, because it exponentially doubles, right? 
That's that's correct. Yeah. And so those are some things that you got to look at as you pick the silage inoculant. Enzymes really help because it doesn't do you any good to have a Ferrari if you don't have fuel for it. And yeah. so the enzymes that are in there help fuel that Ferrari. So you got fuel for it to go and it can go as fast as it can go. So those are just a couple things to look at as you're looking at different inoculants. The other is the application rate. Make sure you're putting it on at the rate that is specified there. Um, you know, a lot of companies will not put it on at the rate that's required, at least not what our research would suggest is required um, in order to get the effect that you want to have on it. So make sure you've got the bacteria counts where they should be in your inoculant and you're putting enough of it on there. It's a total, it's a total package deal, right? Like if you're yes, going to make the, make the investment on the product, you want to make sure that it, the moisture is correct and it's delivered in a timely manner and the pack tractor doesn't get buried because the chopper's moving too much feed and you want to make yes, sure it gets covered exactly. that day or the next morning at the latest and, and all those type things. So, um, I did have another question that came out of that though. Like when a producer is looking at the brochure or whatever, like what are some indicators on there? Like what's a producer going to look at when they're looking at, um, an inoculant brochure and says, you know, it's got this bacteria, this bacteria, like are there levels and things like that, that they could be, um, looking at? Uh, certainly there is. And, you know, you look at the different types of bacteria, which aren't going to mean much to any of the, the producers. Um, they certainly do to somebody like myself, but, um, so the producer can look at the bacteria counts that are in there by bacteria. So, you know, without going into a whole lot of details, um, you know, your lacto, uh, lactic acid producers need to have at least 100,000 CFUs in there. And a lot of uh, our competitors do not put, they just list the bacteria and what the total count is. And so yeah. you have no idea the bacteria that you want in there, whether that's 10,000 or a hundred thousand. Okay. Um, and that's hard information to get if, if the company is not willing to provide that information. So that blend of bacteria in there, um, because there are some lactic acid producing bacteria that are not very efficient at producing lactic acid but they do produce lactic acid, which is what everybody claims. And some of them are put in there at very high levels just because they're easy to grow, they're cheap to grow, and you put them in there, but their effect is minimal. Mm -hmm. And that might be hard for a producer to look at. So that's where it becomes a trust of the supplier. Um, you know, what are the bacteria counts in there, the different bugs that are in it? And then the research is behind the silage inoculant that they're using. And then we add enzymes in there to help fuel the process. Yeah. So like, like just a quick synopsis of that, like if a producer is looking at the brochure, they're going to look for the CFU, like the bacteria is uh, like the, whether it be lactobacillus or buckneri. Right. And then the amount of CFU per right. unit, I guess. 
well, not just per unit, I'll tell you the total, but if they've okay. got, uh, you know, enterobacteria or different lactobacilli in there, um, they don't tell you how much of each one is in there. Okay. They'll just list, you know, five bacteria that are in there and then, or two or whatever the case may be, but they don't tell you how much of each one is in there. Okay. And that, so, and how's, how's that measured? Like that's CFUs per gram? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It, it's the guaranteed level of CFUs per gram of fresh forage that's in there. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it's put on there. And yeah. I mean, that's just a counting process. Mm -hmm. Throw them up and count them. Well, Andy, I, uh, I learned a lot this morning. I know it's, uh, it's a question that I get from producers all the time. Should I do it? Should I not do it? I think uh, at the end of the day, we need to really sit down and I guess make a decision tree almost on it or kind of evaluate like where the producer's at and, you know, what bacteria or what strain of inoculant might work better or worse, or do you need to spend that? Or do you, like, can you get away with that? And I think uh, you helped answer a lot of those questions this morning. And I, I really appreciate you uh, coming sure. on the podcast and, and sharing some of your knowledge on the topic. So, and I also oh. want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I know oh, it's Thanksgiving you. tomorrow <laughs> in, uh, in the U S so. Yeah. So I, I was just going to give one more analogy, maybe yep. help producers Absolutely. understand this. And that comes from the wine industry. Okay. You know, if you want to make it well, let me back up in the past, um, the wine industry depended on the, yeast and bacteria that come in off the grapes from the field. And every vineyard was different and every year was different, you know, and you used to always hear everybody talk about how this year was a good year, that year was a bad year or not as good a year because they had no control over the fermentation. They depended mm -hmm. on whatever nature provided them that when they made their wine, that's what they used. And so quality was quite variable from one year to the next. You may have a very good year this year. Next year, it may not be quite so good. Well, silage is the same thing. So what the wine industry has done to control that fermentation is that they, they analyze the sugar levels and all of that, and then they use a yeast to control the fermentation to actually inoculate the wine, not depending on whatever nature provides them that year. Mm -hmm. And so our silage is the same way. Do you want to risk your entire silage pile to whatever nature gives you this year? Or do you want to take control over it and use a quality inoculant to control that fermentation process and help ensure that you're getting a good crop, good feed yeah. for your cows? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's amazing how much time and effort goes into making silages and i think it's just the the one variable that you can't control is you know what you're bringing in with that crop so if you are adding inoculant okay. i guess you're gonna have a little bit more of a you're gonna tip the scale of fortune in your favor a little bit so that's correct yeah so no i uh i truly appreciate this andy and i hope you can get up to uh 
back up here in Ontario or up into Canada sometime soon and we can have a glass of wine or a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Andy. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.